At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Do you ever feel like the world is spinning out of control? Amidst the world's chaos and growing opposition to our faith, economic hardship, and overwhelming challenges, we can find inspiration from the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. Despite facing an angry king, severe drought, massive opposition, and depression, Elijah lived a powerful and impactful life for God. Join us for our series, Elijah, as we learn how the same God Elijah served can use us to live a life of impact for his kingdom. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. I'm really super pumped to be with you today because this week my wife and I celebrate our anniversary. So I'm really excited about that. And I want to start today by sharing a little bit about how we met. And you'll see why in a moment. But when we first met, Georgette lived in New York. I lived here in Michigan. And so it was a long-distance relationship. This was before FaceTime, before texting, before all of the wonderful technology we have. So email and phone calls was how we connected. Romantic, I know. I know you're all jealous. But after several months of getting to know one another, we traveled to each other just to kind of visit, uh, get to know family and and visit them and and meet them for the first time. And when I went to New York, um, Georgette lived about an hour and a half north of Manhattan. And so she planned a trip to New York City. It was a blast. We saw a show on Broadway. We went and ate in Little Italy. We even toured the famous street vendors on Canal Street. I don't know if you've ever been there. And it was a pretty amazing time. And there were so many different things that you could buy there on Canal Street. And let's be honest, they were all fake. All of them were fake and they were being sold for for cheap. But see, the things, they all, they looked like the real thing. They had luxury handbags, sneakers, jewelry, all kinds of bling. They had designer clothes. It was all there for your purchase. And the street vendors, man, they knew exactly how to put their hooks in you. They knew exactly what to say. They didn't have to know you. They could just start talking to you and say, come on over here. Look what I have for you. This is what you need. And it all looked legit. It all looked like the real thing. But the truth is, much, if not all of it, was fake. And the cost of getting fooled by a fake in those situations could be just 20 bucks, maybe 10 bucks even. Maybe at worst, maybe 100 or 150. But it got me thinking, what's the cost of getting fooled by a fake God? Let me, let me ask you that a different way. What's the impact on our lives if we follow an idol? I think if we're honest, most of us, when we think about an idol or idolatry, we think of some kind of primitive statue, some maybe carved image out of wood or something, and the primitive people like gathered around, kind of kneeling down and maybe bowing to it. Something weird, maybe even something comical. But in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller wrote that our modern culture isn't all that different, isn't different really at all. He says this, We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. 
This book has had a profound impact on my life. And I, and I think it's going to be a powerful supplement to our text today. And so I'm going I'm to lean into it more than once. So you'll hear those words from Keller again. See, the truth is, anything can be an idol. Absolutely anything in your life, absolutely anything in my life. And so I just want to kind of cue you up to this today. I want to kind of prompt you to really take a look into your own heart. And I want to do that by asking you a question. What's most fundamental to your happiness, your meaning in life, and your identity? Most fundamental. And as you're processing that question, whatever comes to your mind, if it's not God, then you have just discovered your idol. See, the truth is, every human being was made to worship. Isaiah 43, 7 says that God actually made us, he formed us for his glory. Worship of God is the blueprint of your life and my life, of every human life. It's the actual design of your life. But it's also the purpose of your life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Worshiping God and enjoying him forever is the design and purpose of your life. Is, is it any wonder to any of us that having no other gods before him, having no other idols, that sits at the top of God's top ten list? See, with idols, the stakes are so much higher than buying some fake sunglasses or sneakers. And this morning, we're going to continue our series, Elijah, A Man Like Us. And I think last week we saw that Elijah is just like us. There's nothing spectacular, nothing extraordinary about his life that enabled him to serve God in a way that you and I can't today. Nothing at all. And today it's critical, absolutely critical we remember that. Because we're going to witness what is arguably the highest point of Elijah's life. The highest point of his life. It's nothing short of an awesome display of God's power, but it's also the confirmation that God alone is the one true living God. But before we do that, let's pray together. Gracious and almighty God, God, I declare in front of your people today that above you is absolutely nothing and below you is everything. God, there is no one like you, never has been, never will be. You alone are God. And God, I pray for myself, I pray for all of your people that we would not be deceived by the idols of our day. And they are many. God, remind us that they always disappoint us. Remind us that they always lead to destruction. God, give us wisdom. Give us insight into our own hearts, God. Would you be so gracious today, Father, and, and allow us to see into our own lives. Open our hearts and our minds to your word. Help us to see where idols may be. Because in you, there is life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember, we started our series last week in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, and we saw that Elijah was a faithful follower of God. But it was actually a dangerous time to be one of those, a very dangerous time. King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they had made idolatry the norm throughout the land. It was expected of everyone. 
And God sends his prophet Elijah to announce a drought as a direct challenge to the idolatry that was taking place. And God warned them long before them that he was going to do just that. He was going to hold back the rain. And you and I, as we read, we saw Elijah obey God's voice and depend on him completely for everything that he needed. It was quite astonishing the way God provided, wasn't it? But much of what we saw took place was private. It happened between God and Elijah, and the widow and the son were there, of course, as well. But it was a relatively small audience. But now it's going to, be get, to get dramatically public. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 1. We've got a long passage this morning. So buckle up, 40 verses, but we can get through it. I'm going to read through it in chunks. It'll be behind me on the screen as well, but um, follow along with me. 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water, And to all the valleys, perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you um, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here? And he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Let's stop there for a moment. So last we left Elijah, he was in the care of a poor widow. And a few years have passed now. The drought is really, really bad. 
many people are likely facing starvation, the kinds of which you and I haven't seen. God tells Elijah, go and present yourself before Ahab. And the text doesn't really tell us how Elijah's going is going to result in God sending rain. And it's important we remember that the people didn't really rely on God at all here. They were counting on Baal, right? They believed that he sends the rain. After all, he was the storm god. But in God's private dealings with Elijah, we saw vividly God is the one who has control over all the natural resources. He was the one providing for Elijah. And in fact, he is the one who's actually holding back the rain all these years. And he's doing it to reveal the emptiness of their idol. But he's also doing it to show them mercy, to provide them time and an opportunity to repent to God. Think about it. At God's word, Elijah, he announces the drought. He goes before Ahab as God tells him. He announces the drought and then he leaves. God literally removes him and protects him off in secret. And the drought happens and it continues and increases in severity as Elijah's gone. And for years and years, Baal doesn't come through. He fails the people. And now Elijah comes back to Ahab. He comes back literally the embodiment of God's promise. God is doing all of this. Elijah is his vessel, nothing more. And while Elijah goes to find Ahab, we are introduced to another prophet of God, Obadiah, here. So there's no repentance from Ahab at all. He just moves on to the next flavor of the month, the next prophet, to give him what he wants, to tell him what he wants to hear. No repentance at all. And Obadiah is in a pretty tough spot. He fears the Lord, but he also knows he must serve the king as a prophet. And Ahab sends Obadiah to find some grass for their livestock to feed. The drought is severe. They want to try to keep the animals alive. But see, Obadiah knows just like you and I know, the whole reason for the drought is Ahab's fault. It's because of his idolatry and his leadership in bringing idolatry to the nation. And Obadiah knows that soon he wouldn't be able to do both. He wouldn't be able to obey God and also honor the king at the same time. And so as Obadiah is out searching, he runs into Elijah, and Elijah basically says, hey, go tell Ahab I'm here, and I'm ready to meet him. But Obadiah is afraid for even spotting Elijah, even coming upon him. He basically says, hey, everybody's been looking for you, even Ahab. And I've already risked my life here trying to save some prophets and hiding them after Jezebel came after them. And so you want me to go back to him? As soon as I do, I'm, I'm dead. My life is over. But Elijah's confidence is matched by Obadiah, Obadiah's fear. They're about the same here. And Elijah assures him that none of that is going to happen. None of that is going to happen. And so Obadiah goes and tells Ahab and Elijah and Ahab, now meet for the second time. Think about that moment. He first announces the drought and now he comes back with the promise that God's going to send the rain. And from their conversation, we learn the first thing that I want you to know about idols is idols corrupt our lives. They corrupt our lives. Look again at the conversation between Ahab and Elijah, verse 17. Ahab actually attempts to provoke Elijah in actually blaming him for the drought. See, this is what idols do. They corrupt us by just messing with our thinking. 
Our thinking is corrupted. But by blaming Elijah, don't miss this, Ahab is really blaming God for the whole thing. He has no remorse whatsoever. He has no broken spirit over his own sin. The preciousness of others is lost on him. He has no regard for other human beings. He's deceived. And he actually takes steps now to blame others for what's going on. I think it reminds me of what Keller says again in Counterfeit Gods. Idols always disappoint and often do so destructively, leading to terrible evil. I think it's common to all of us that the thinking that, that if we just got what we wanted, we would be satisfied. I think we can all relate to that. Whether it's now, whether it's some point previously in your life, maybe it's a day yet to come. But I want you to consider Abraham and Sarah. They couldn't have children. They desperately wanted a son. They wanted a child. And they doubted when God promised them that he would give them one. They laughed even until it happened. (laughs) Until it happened. But once they got that child that they always wanted, the center of Abraham's life began to shift. Right? The love that he had for God began to move off of God and onto Isaac. The center of his love shifted from the gift giver to the gift. And then... Genesis 22, God made a shocking request. Sacrifice your son to me. Oh, how those words would feel to hear. See, God doesn't want us to hate our children. He doesn't want us to hate anything that he gives us. Not at all. But see, when our love for someone or something moves from a healthy love to adoration, quite literally, worship, like we can't live without this person or we can't live without this, that love's corrupt. It's no longer good. It's no longer pure. It's no longer honoring to God. And that corruption affects our hearts and our minds as well. They become corrupted. Our motives become selfishly twisted. And that place that God is supposed to have in our life, it's stolen by the idol that we put there. Again, Keller is on point when he writes this. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, Competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it's really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that then I'll feel significant and secure. 
There's so many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. I think we can also add busyness to that list. Because busyness is the idol of self-importance. See, it's easy for us to take this text and just kind of step away from it and say, yeah, I, I don't believe in storm gods. I, I'm not like Ahab at all. I mean, as Michiganders, we know that if we want rain, just wait five minutes. Or wash your car, right? And then it'll rain. But honestly, if we truly want to know if we have anything in common with Ahab, if we're like him at all, just ask yourself this. What in your life has shifted the center of your love off of God? See, the first step in repenting of an idol is knowing that it's there. Is knowing that it's there. But Ahab doesn't seem to be interested in repentance, does he? There's no evidence in here that he cares at all about repenting of his sin, that he's even aware of the idol that's there. His corruption runs that deep for him. But Elijah's not having it. <laughs> he kind of turns it back on him and says, uh, no, this is your fault. You have abandoned God and you're worshiping an idol. So it's time to settle this. It's time to settle this for good. So gather all the people together. So let's go back to our text and see what happens. Pick it up at verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call on the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. There was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out Upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of, of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Let's stop there again. So the showdown begins. Everyone comes together at Mount Carmel. And if you know anything about the history here, this is Baal's home turf. This is his domain, allegedly. 
And Elijah brings the intensity of the moment out in the open with a question, pretty provocative one. How long are you going to waver? How long are you going to waffle back and forth? Who are you going to follow? See, even today, many don't want to face this question. Are you going to follow the Lord or are you going to follow the idol in your heart? See, I think this question demands an answer because it determines the direction of our lives. You can't not give an answer. See, we might think of faithful follower of God's and atheists in this moment, but even people who are indifferent, that still is an answer. Indifference is still an answer. And even the human wisdom today would say, can't we just let it be? Can't you just have your truth and I have my truth? Can't we just tolerate all the gods in the world? No. You can't. Because the one true God, he demands your adoration. He demands it because you and I were made for his glory and no one else's. You were made for God's glory. I was made for God's glory. God is not neutral in who you follow. So Elijah, he lays down a challenge of sacrifices. They each would make a sacrifice. When the God who answers with fire, he is God. And I love this that Elijah even lets them go first. It's even like there's a hint of sarcasm in every one of his words here. You guys are many. I'm just a little old guy. Who says God doesn't have a sense of humor? So the prophets of Baal, they make their sacrifice and they call out to Baal. They shout even. They move around the altar. Some commentators even knowing the primitive worship of this time say that they even danced. That was part of their ritual and custom. But nothing. No response. This goes on for hours and hours and hours. Proper understanding of the text here, all day long, this goes on. And it's right at that moment that we see the second thing about idols is that they have no life. Idols have no life. And Elijah's mocking actually brings this out. After hours of crying out to Baal, he's kind of sitting in the background, just watching this all unfold. And then he comes up and he just says, hey, maybe he's meditating. Maybe he's going number two. That's a literal translation. The word actually means to defecate, just in case you were wondering. Maybe he went on a trip. Maybe he's taking a nap. And he needs, just needs to be kind of woken up. Why don't you guys go wake him up? See, the devastation we read in here is just, his mocking didn't deter them at all. That's how far the deception goes with idols. They just kept going in what they were doing. But still, no one answered. The text tells us no one paid attention to the prophets. See, Baal can't answer because he, like every other idol, isn't real. Isn't real. If you were with us last week, I shared with you that God called me out of the marketplace to become a pastor about 10 years ago. And part of that call also involved exposing an idol in my life. I was a workaholic. 
I was, I had an idol that was the idol of success and achievement. See, my, my happiness, the meaning of my life, my identity was tied to and locked into how much I could achieve, how much success that all my work brought to me. It had such a controlling position in my heart that the more, without, without constant achievement, without constant success, I felt insecure. I felt insignificant. I felt like a nobody if I couldn't succeed at what I was doing, if I couldn't be the best, if I couldn't achieve the top. See, to be the best, to be at the top means you're one of a kind. There's no one else like you. You're supreme. Maybe even like a god. See, an idol distorts how you see yourself. It distorts everything that you think and see about yourself. And God used a dream job to expose this in my life. A job that I was literally killing it. I had so much success. But with each success, each achievement, I felt more and more empty in my heart. I felt like God was literally pouring the life out of me with everything that I achieved, everything that I succeeded in. It was no surprise that the the harder that I worked, the more effort that I brought to my work, the emptier I felt the more lifeless I felt. See, my my idol had no life to begin with. And I put up a a standard of competition with Jesus in my life. I literally choked his presence out of my life. I'm not telling you this morning that hard work doesn't matter. (laughs) Having a good work ethic is really important. What I am telling you, it's all about what's in here. What's motivating you? to do whatever it is you're doing. See, it's about the condition of our heart. What's, what's driving us? If the desire is to bring glory to God, to, to worship him, then it's good. And it's whole and it's, it's beautiful. But if the desire is for significance because you believe otherwise you have none, that's idolatry. Plain and simple. Look back at verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. The third thing we learn about idols is they take our life. Idols take our life. Verse 28, it shows the utter ruin that idolatry brings to our life. To get Baal's attention, they go full desperate. They're fully desperate here for Baal to answer. So committed to the idol that they constructed in their hearts. So just bought into the idea that he's real and he actually does something for them. That they cut themselves violently to please him. Somehow to, to beg him to respond. And this is what idols demand. They demand your life entirely. And that's the true danger of idols. I want you to see this morning. We brutalize ourselves for something that isn't real to begin with. But see, the one, the one true living God doesn't do that at all. The Lord is the only God who gives life. 
I want you to believe that today. Regardless of what the idol in your life is telling you, the Lord alone gives you life. And the rest of our text shows us this to be true. Let's go back to verse 30. says this, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it onto the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. The prophets of Baal fail. All of their efforts yield nothing. And Elijah then calls the people to come near. Elijah following God's word the whole way, he actually even raises the stakes by adding water. Three times even. And then he doesn't dance, he doesn't parade around, he just prays. He depends completely on God to show up. And he does. And he does. And God sends fire in such a dramatic way that the only conclusion anyone can make is that the Lord, he is God. He is the only one who brings life and who gives life. See, the idols of today, they fail in the exact same way. They corrupt us. They have nothing to offer and they take everything. And God, through his son Jesus, he's called us to come near. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. He even prayed that you would be redeemed and that you would be one with him. And just like God sent his fire to consume Elijah's sacrifice, he poured out his fiery wrath on Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus took it and he died. And then he was raised to new life. And through repentance and faith, Jesus gives you that same life.
Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.